Genesis chapter 6 is where we find ourselves this morning. And if, uh, if you thought it would be cool to come to church some Sunday to talk about some of the weirdest things ever in the Bible, this is the Sunday you want to come to church. All right, so you're, you, you picked a good day. This is, this is an interesting passage that we're going to look at here today. Let's, um, let's do this. Before we jump into this passage of Scripture today, let's, let's pray and just ask that God would speak to us. And uh, like I said, to me, this is a, a really weird passage, but um, I trust that God has it in his word for a reason. And um, I'm hoping that it will be uh, an encouragement to all of us. So let's pray here this morning. Father, I thank you for this day. God, we are grateful that you have given us your word. And Lord, all of it, we are so thankful that it helps us understand who we are. And it helps us understand who you are. And it gives us, Lord, some sense of your love and your heart for us. And God, in every single day, Lord, we need to know that and be aware of that. We need to know that you love us. We need to know that you care for us. We need to know that you are there in the midst of the difficult things that happen in our lives. And Lord, today I'd just like to pray, especially for those who may have had a really hard week. And I know that there are several uh, among our church that had a hard week. And Lord, I just pray, God, today that you would encourage them, that you'd pour into their hearts, that you'd fill them up. So often, Lord, we come into church just feeling empty and feeling beat up and worn down. And Lord, all we need is just a, a, a touch from you. And as we just sang, Lord Jesus, we love you. And we just pray, God, that you would pour out your love upon us. And so, God, I pray that you would do that today. Even as we, we, we engage our minds and engage our hearts in kind of a hard passage of Scripture we still see your love and your grace and your favor in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that even though we go through these other difficult texts, Lord, that those things would still seep into our hearts and our minds, that we'd be encouraged and built up in you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Genesis chapter 6. Let's go ahead and read the passage that we're going to look at here today. All right. We're going to start in verse 1. We're going to read eight verses. That's all today. But here here it goes, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 4. The Nephilim, if you don't know what that is yet, don't worry, you shouldn't. (laughs) The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things 
and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, now this passage of scripture almost feels like it's like... uh, These are like four different things happening all at once, all crammed into these little verses. And it's like, where did that come from and this come from? And hold on, here we are just in chapter six of the Bible. We spent all this time talking about creation and it was good and all that God did. And now here we are in chapter six and he's already ready to wipe it all out. Like that's the end of the book. Six chapters finished. What is going on here? And what on earth is this word Nephilim? And what is all this about? All right. Well, we're going to walk through it, and it's going to take us some time, Um, but we're going to do it. We're going to pull this off. Now, last week, we talked about the genealogy of Adam and Eve all the way to Noah. Adam and Eve, who God created and was placed in the garden. Adam and Eve, who fell into sin by disobeying God and eating of the fruit. And then their children. And we saw how that happened with Cain and Abel and that whole process. And eventually Cain kills Abel. But then at the end of the the genealogy, the, the different kids and children that they had, we came to Seth last week. And Seth, we saw, had a special calling basically in his life. Where Adam and Eve recognized, whoa, this one, God has given us this one. Not only to replace our son who was murdered by our other son but also that God is going to do something special with this particular son. And then we kept following through and we saw that there were these other people like Enoch that walked with God and, and this, whole, uh, this whole line, this whole lineage. But what we also saw in that pass, passage from Adam to Noah is we saw that society at large was on the moral decline. It wasn't just one sin in the garden and that was it. And then everybody just kind of hovered in neutral. What we saw was sin continued to increase and morally wickedness started filtering into all of the parts of society and things just got worse and worse and worse. And there were very few people that were actually walking with God or interested in God or wanted a relationship with God. But there was still that thread through the family tree following Adam and Eve all the way down to Seth. And as chapter six begins, we see that even that line, the line of Seth was being compromised. All right. So let's walk through it again. Let's, let's reread these verses, um, but in, in chunks, let's look at the first two verses right now. When man began to multiply in the face of the land, daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives, any as they chose. Now we look at that. Just from a quick reading, you're like, well, that's fine, right? God put Adam and Eve on earth and said, be fruitful and multiply. So we would expect that they would be fruitful and multiply and there would be people getting married and having babies and spreading around the world. That's what they were called to do. So you look at these two verses and you're like, what's the big deal? That all seems fine. But then as soon as you get to the next verse, verse three, we see some different things happen. Now in verse one and two, it's, it's also not very hard to believe But it seems like these men were only interested in good looks, (laughs) right? What does it say? Well, they're looking for the women that were attractive, all right? But furthermore, it kind of alludes to the fact that they weren't satisfied with just one wife. That's actually what's being implied here. 
but they began marrying multiple wives. Now, we already saw that earlier in Genesis with Lamech, who took two wives and was kind of bragging about it. But here, what we see is that's starting to become a common thing that's happening. And that's where we see then the response from God in in verse 3. That's why the Lord says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. When we were going through this genealogy last week, we saw these people with these astronomically large lifespans, right? Methuselah, 969 years. And we talked about how this is just incredible that that's what was happening. But right here, we see that God doesn't just say, uh-huh, I, I guess, I, you know, 900 years, that's a lot. Let's say 120 instead. No. What's happening here is, and it's not written, but this is what we're implying. God is saying this wickedness stuff, all of these other things that just keep on going and keep on happening, I'm not going to deal with that. So in order to limit some of the craziness and the damage that's happening, I'm going to shrink their lifespans. In fact, I need about a tenth of what I was giving them before because I can't handle this. Because once they get into their, you know, the, the, the terrible 200s, like, <laughs> things get really bad around here. And I don't want that anymore. So I'm going to shrink their lifespan. Okay? Now, I do want you to notice that the shortening of the lifespan wasn't immediate. It wasn't that he just gave this hard expiration date. And sometimes people point to that and say, say see, no one could ever live past 120. That's not exactly what was being said here. God is just saying, I'm going to shrink their lifespan, and it's going to be 120 120 years. But after this particular statement that he makes here in in chapter 6, we actually see several people in the Bible living very long lives into their mid to late 100s. Abraham, for instance, lived to 175. Noah himself, who was alive when God made this statement, he'll go on to live to 950 years. All right? But those after would not come close. And from Noah's children onward, lifespans continued to decrease until what we have roughly today, around 120 years. I I don't know, I didn't look it up this week, of who the oldest person that they believe on earth is right now. But I remember not that long ago, a few months back, I read an article about the person that they thought was the oldest person alive had just died at 116 you know, so there are still people that are living into that zone, but you don't find people anymore that live to 350 or, or anything like that, right? The, the, the lifespan was shortened. Okay, then we come to verse 4. Um, and, and let's read it again. Verse 4 says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. What in the world were the Nephilim? Now, I'm kind of making references to this phrase, Nephilim. If you're not from around church, if the Bible is new to you, and you haven't spent most of your life in church, you've probably never heard of this. But for people that have been around church a lot, this, like I said, is one of the most bizarre ideas that's in the entire Bible. If you go to seminaries or Bible colleges or things like that, you will be amazed. Everybody that goes to those things, they know about the Nephilim because people sit around with cups of coffee trying to figure out what in the world is going on here, all right? 
Um, and so I want us to, to go into it a little bit. Let me read you a, a statement from a, a commentator that wrote a, a book about this uh, context. Here's what he says. He says, the first four j- verses of Genesis 6, 1 to 4, are widely viewed as one of the most controversial and difficult texts in the Old Testament. The interpretive difficulties arise from the text's unusual content, the unclear nature of its relationship to the surrounding texts, its lack of detail, and its vocabulary and syntax. Basically, everything about these verses are confusing even for theologians and language scholars. All right, so for all these centuries, we learn all this information, but we look at this and these people that have studied this and have devoted their lives to figuring this stuff out, they're like, what is going on here? This is weird. This is bizarre. And when you add some of the pretty strange interpretations that have been passed down from ancient times about this passage, um, it, 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 it makes it even more difficult. And there's a couple of phrases here that I have to point out for us to look at to see where all the, the problems come. All right. First off, it's this phrase, the sons of God. We saw it first in verse two, and then you see it again in verse four, the sons of God. Then in contrast to that, we have the daughters of man. And then we have this word Nephilim. All right. Those are the three big problems here with what this, what this all is. Even the word Nephilim, is very confusing because it only shows up a couple places in all of antiquity. So all of the ancient texts. And guys, understand that many of the passages that we have from the Bible, it's not like somebody just thought this up in the 1960s, right? We have fragments and documents passed down from generation after generation after generation. Many of these texts are thousands of years old. Right? And when you go back even to the oldest ancient text and you go all the way through it, this word Nephilim is hardly ever, it, it doesn't show up anywhere. There's a couple little places in the Bible that it, that it pops up, and this is the primary one. All right? And here's why it's so difficult, because if you don't have a lot of other context, context in the ancient language, you can't really figure out what that word was supposed to mean. And, and it's used in a couple different ways, and so that we know it had multiple meanings. So the word Nephilim can mean two things that we know of. It can either mean to fall or collapse, or it can mean giants. Now, as you can see, that's kind of a problem because those are very different words. All right? But that's a common thing in language. Think of it this way, in English. If we were driving somewhere together in a car and we're driving along the street and I tell you, hey, park right here so that we can go over and walk in the park. I've just used the word park to mean two totally different things. I've used it as an action that I want you to park the car. But then now I'm talking about a place that we're going to go and walk around, a park. All right. This is Nephilim. It can mean to fall or it can mean a giant. Kind of strange. Okay. So here's, there are, like I said, there's different ideas then of how we actually interpret what in the world these verses are saying. I'm going to give you three options today. So the next time you run into some Bible scholar who asks you about the Nephilim, you can tell them, well, here's your three options. Okay. Here they are. The oldest Jewish interpretations is that the sons of God, that phrase, sons of God, were not humans at all. Okay. Okay told you, this is going to get weird. 
They weren't humans at all, but in fact, they were fallen angels, demons. And that's what they're saying is is being described here. These fallen angels, these demons that were lusting after human women. So that's how they interpreted it. And that interpretation is what influenced Jude and 2 Peter, which are books in the New Testament that we see much later. Okay? And the reason that they had that that interpretation was because that was the primary way that the the Jewish teachers, the ancient Jewish, Jewish teachers, taught this passage. All right? Here's why. The phrase, sons of God, is usually used in the Old Testament for angelic beings. All right? That phrase, sons of God, pops up all over the place in the Old Testament. Not like Nephilim. It's all over. Sons of God, sons of God, sons of God. But almost always, it doesn't mean people at all. It's actually a reference to the the celestial beings, to angels. All right? The book of Job has an example that in Job chapter 1, verse 6, it'll be on the screen for you. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. If you go on and you read this story, this is a picture of the throne room of heaven. These angels gathering together before God to have this conversation with God. Satan also came along at this point. All right? Now, that phrase, sons of God, is not referring to people. It's not the people showed up at the throne room of heaven before God. It's referring to angels. And throughout scripture, we see this over and over that that's usually what it is. All right? Now, here's what you have to understand, though, about that. If you want to study the rest of the Old Testament and see what we learn about angels, okay? There's no biblical evidence anywhere, cover to cover in this Bible, that angels or demons can procreate or that they were even created with gender. All right? Now, you may picture an angel as some beautiful woman in a white gown with wings or some, you know, super, I don't know, fit man that's young and healthy and he appears in sparkling clothes or something, right? But that's all our imagination. We don't see that in scripture. That's not what we find. Angels don't have human bodies, all right? According to scripture, angels don't have human bodies. They are given the ability to take a human form when they bring messages to humanity, right? We see that all through scripture, um, when, when Jesus, uh, after he resurrected, and they come to the empty tomb, who do they find? They find a, a messenger there in dazzling white clothes, uh, the, a bodily human form, but it was, a, it was an angel, all right? But that doesn't make them human, even though they can have a human form to bring a message to humanity. Uh, this is how that also works. Think about this. We've been studying through Genesis how we're made in the image of God. All right? We are a reflection of our creator. But just because we're made in the image of God doesn't mean we're God. Right? Hate to break it to you guys. You're not God. (laughs) And you're not going to be. We're made in the image of God. We have a form, a likeness similar to God, but we're not God. And scripture is very clear that angels and demons and humans are different created orders of being. Okay? I know, this is way deeper than you're expecting at 10 a.m., but hang with me here, all right? And here's what's important to know. You will not become an angel when you die and go to heaven. Nor will angels ever become humans. We're two separate orders. 
And I know that people traditionally sometimes think that, oh, you know, they got their wings. They made it to heaven. They don't become, humans don't become angels. Angels don't become humans. That's not how it works. Okay? That's not biblical. It's not here. You won't find it. They're two separate orders. So if that's what's being described, if the sons of God are actually these demons that are chasing after human women, but they don't have physical bodies, they can't procreate, they can't have children, what is going on here? Well, if that's what's being described, then these demons, the only explanation is that these demons had possessed human men and were using their bodies for their will. Right when you thought it wouldn't get any stranger. (laughs) It does. It's crazy, I know. And by the way, I don't believe that this is a reference to aliens. And some people will tell you, aliens are in the Bible. I read it. It's in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. Nephilim. It's really aliens. No, it's not, guys. No, it's not. Sorry. I lose a few of you, the Area 54 people among us or whatever. But no, I don't think it's aliens. So if this is what's happening, as bizarre and weird as this is, that's the only explanation I think that we have with it. All right? Now, there's one pretty big problem with that for me personally, if that is what, what is being described here. Why would God punish humans with a shortened lifespan if demons were the instigators of this? Now, you might say, some people would say, oh, it's just, it's collateral damage. It's, it's kind of like the innocent animals that are about to die in a flood here that had nothing to do with it. Okay, maybe that's the case. That seems kind of strange. Because what we see here is God saying, my spirit's not going to wrestle with these human beings to 900 years anymore. I'm going for 120. I I would have more expected if he was going to say that is he's going to say, well, I'm going to shrink these guys because these crazy demons, I can't keep them under control. Something like that, maybe. But that's not what we see. So, okay, that's one of the issues there. But that's option one. But we'll keep moving. Option two. Option two is this that this particular text was probably misinterpreted very early on in history, which set the precedent for such a supernatural interpretation. This is what I mean by that. In that case, maybe what's being described here is that the sons of God, the reason that that phrase was used, was actually a reference to the godly line of Seth. Now, as we've already seen in these other passages, it's very clear that one of the points that God wants us to get through those early chapters of Genesis is that there was a little thread of people that really wanted to walk with God, right? And so we're seeing that. And so here we come up to chapter six, and maybe that's what it is. Maybe the contrast is between these people that were following after God, the sons of God, that were wanting to intermarry with these women that were like the daughters of man, that they were chasing men. It was that kind of realm. So maybe that's what's being described here. Um, that, that, that Enoch and Noah and Seth, that was contrasted with the women who weren't walking with God. In that case, maybe the word Nephilim was describing those men as giants. Remember how we talked about giants? Not in a term of, oh, they're 12 feet tall, but in the fact that they were men of, as it says there, men, mighty men of renown. Maybe it was more of a spiritual, they were spiritual giants. These were the few people that were actually pursuing God. But what happened? They were chasing after the beautiful women. And the beautiful women were not following after God. And what it did is it ended up bringing them down towards a a path of destruction. 
All right, that very well could be what was going on. Because as we know, that, I mean, we see this all the time. Men who we view as spiritual giants that fall into sexual sin and are consumed by lust. That's actually a very natural kind of uh, predicament that we find, right? So that could be what's being described here. Third, here's option three for you. And then we'll move on. So hang in there. Option three is similar to option two with a natural explanation, but instead of the word Nephilim, meaning people of great renown in a good way, it could also mean that these men of renown were men of infamy. They were giants, all right, but not in a good way. They were the the people who had gobbled up control. They were tyrants. And so maybe what's being described here is we had these people that kind of took control and took over in the world around, and they start, they're the ones that, that, you know, come along Cain's lineage, and they're continuing to pollute society. So their renown was actually infamy, all right? That would also fit in this. But here's the thing. We read a passage like this, and we're like, oh my goodness, what do we do with this? No matter what it describes, option one, option two, option three, The point that we pull out of this is that sin is the glaring issue that's at at stake, all right? So whether it was something bizarre and weird and demonic possession and all this kind of stuff happening, whether it was, no, actually, it was just these good guys who blew it, or it was these other guys that were not such good guys that were wreaking havoc, either way, no matter what was happening there, the problem was the sin issue, And the sin issue is what God is going to address. All right? Sin was saturating the culture. And and it ultimately would set the stage for radical judgment. And that other stuff, even though it might be interesting to you, it might be not interesting at all to you, it really has no theological bearing. But verses 5 and 6 do. And this is why I said, this is just a hard passage. Once we get through this, guys, it's going to smooth out in Genesis, all right? But this week is a a difficult one, right? And in verse 5 and 6, we see something that we don't usually expect from God Almighty. We see something that makes us pause and have to think. Because what we see in verse 5 and 6 is we see the Lord's regret, okay? We see the Lord's regret. Look at it again says in verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That part's not hard for us to understand. We can picture that, no problem. But verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Some of your uh, Bible translations might say, And the Lord was sorry that he made um, man. He's going to say that again in a minute. In the early scenes of creation, we see God full of joy, right? We go back through those days of creation. At the end of every single day, God looks at what he's created and it's good. And he rejoices. And that's what we see. It's good. It's good. It's good. He gets to mankind. He makes them. He's like, it's very good. And there's just celebration and and heaven itself is rejoicing with what's going on. But here, only a few chapters later, we see that the goodness, the newness, it's, it's worn off and has been broken because of the fall. 
And so now God looks over at the earth and he sees people and he sees wickedness just going bonkers. And he sees that and he has this grief. We see sorrow. And I understand, like I said, I understand his grief. He didn't create us for sin and wickedness. That wasn't our purpose. That wasn't our point. That wasn't his design. But that he created us for a good relationship. And that good relationship was now broken. And humanity was headed down this destructive path. So it makes sense that he'd be grieved to his heart. Because this wasn't his intent. This isn't what he desired. But the idea of God having regret, that's hard for us to understand. Because he's God. Why would God regret something? He knows all things. He's all powerful. How can God have regret? Well, I want to help you understand that a little bit. Um, uh, One commentator says this. It says, on the level of his divine will, God knew that creation was no mistake. But on the level of his emotions, the way man turned out brought great sorrow. So God could say with all honesty that he was sorry that he had made man and yet still be the God who never makes a mistake. God was sorry that things were the way things were, even though he knew that things would be the way they were. All right? I know that's kind of hard. But, but work with me on this. All right, here's, here's how I want to try to describe it to you. There's a difference between understanding something in its fullness, its entirety from start to end, and everything there is to know, have absolute mastery about something, knowing something in its fullness versus knowing just a little fragment of something. All right? The difference between fullness and a fragment It's very easy to go from fullness down to a little fragment. If you know everything there is to know about something and how it works and how it functions, it's very easy for you to find one little sliver of it. Okay, I I haven't done it in a long time, but I used to like to build puzzles. Anybody? Puzzlers in here? Oh, we got a few. We got some puzzlers. And, and if you know the puzzle, you know, all the little pieces are spread out on a table in front of you. If you know what the picture is of a puzzle, isn't it amazing how you'll pick up one little cardboard piece and you see some little piece of green. And you're like, oh, I know exactly where this goes. Why? Because you've seen the picture. If, if you just, somebody walked up to you and said, do you know what this is part of? People, you'd be like, are you crazy? There's no way I do. I don't understand just the fragment. I can't tell you what the fullness is. But if I've already seen the picture... I'm like, oh, I know exactly where that goes. And it's here. Do you see the difference? If you already know the fullness, you can understand the fragment. But it's really hard to go the other way around. It's really hard to see just a little sliver, a little fragment, and think, oh, I know everything there is to know about the big picture. It's very difficult to do that. We see little slivers of God in even who we are. We're made in his image. But just because you look at me and you look at my life, you may see some little slivers. I hope, that's what I'm praying for. I hope that you see little bits and pieces of Jesus in me. But guys, if you look at me as a whole, you're not gonna see Jesus. (laughs) You're gonna see broken bread and the sinful nature that I have, right? But we still see little bits and pieces of what God is doing and what God has done. We are reflections of his nature, but we're not the source. 
Human emotion is granted to us by the source of all emotion. But even our highest emotions are a shadow of God's perfect emotions. So when we try to describe what God is feeling, and here God's feeling regret, we compare that to what we know is a little fragment. And we say, well, I know how I feel when I feel regret. I know what I feel like if I'm angry, if I have wrath. And we try to throw that onto God. But we don't understand the big picture of who God is in his wholeness, in his fullness. Okay? When we try to define God with human terms, it always falls short. And when we try to explain God from a human standpoint, we're going to run out of capacity. We'd love to have a theology that can contain every aspect, the fullness of God, and say, this is it, all the way, from start to finish. This is who God is. This is what he's all about. But we will always fall short. And, and I don't think we'll ever be able to contain who God is. In fact, I don't believe that, even, that we'll even understand God in his fullness when we spend eternity with him. Why? Because he's God and we aren't. <laughs> We'll constantly be learning more and understanding God more, but we're never going to get God. We're never going to see the whole of who he is. We can only work with what we have because we're limited humans. So a couple statements that help us understand where God, what God is feeling here and what God's decision-making process is in this. First off, I need you to know that God's essence does not change. All right, that's a biblical truth. God's essence does not change. He is immutable, he is unchangeable, and he knows all things. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man, that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind. He is God, his essence does not change. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ, who is God, is the same yesterday and today and forever. Okay, yet... So God's essence does not change, yet God responds and moves in his relationship with people. Both things are true. He does not change, and yet he moves and responds in his relationship with people. He's dynamic. The Bible also says that. He told Jeremiah to speak this to the people. Jeremiah 26, 13. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds. This is Jeremiah speaking to people. And obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will relent of the disaster that he's pronounced against you. God told Jeremiah, go to this people and tell them, I'm going to bring judgment on them, and it's not going to be pretty. But then God also said to Jeremiah, all right, now that you've told them that judgment's coming, now I want you to go back and tell them, if they change their ways, I'll relent from what I told you I'm going to do. Well, which is it, God? Did you say you're going to do it? You're God and you say you're going to do it. It's going to happen, right? Yes, but I'm also going to respond to, in my relationship to people. Okay? That's exactly what happened in the story of Jonah. Jonah and the big fish. A lot of people know that story, even if they don't know the Bible. What happened? God spoke to Jonah and said, go through the city of Nineveh. I want you to march through that whole place. And it's a giant city. And I want you to go through and tell them 40 days and then destruction. That's it. Don't you, don't want you preaching the gospel. Don't you talking about anything else. Go through and tell them all 40 days and destruction. I'm wiping you all out. So Jonah does it. He goes through the whole city. And what happens? Everybody from the king himself down to the lowest peasant, all of them repent. They're like, oh my gosh. We deserve destruction. It shouldn't happen. We repent. And so guess what happens? 
God then speaks again to Jonah and says, now go back to the people in Jonah 3.10. And here's what it says. When God saw what they did, the people of Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Do you see this? Are you understanding this? God is sovereign. And yet he's endowed humanity with free will. He knows all things, but he listens to our prayers. Have you ever wondered that? Why do I even pray to you, God? You already know it. Yeah, he does already know it, but he still listens. He's still moving with us. He's still living with us. He's, he's responding to us. I know it's kind of a, a brain trip, but you have to understand that there are certain tensions that we have to live with because they're beyond our understanding. We only see these little fragments. We can't see the whole picture, guys. And some of these things that feel like contradictions, they're not contradictions. We just don't understand it. So that feels like a contradiction to us. They're beyond our understanding. I know that's uncomfortable, but I want to encourage you to trust that God knows what he's doing and how he is doing it. And that also informs you when you come to verse seven. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Wickedness required judgment. Things were so bad that God decided to wipe them out and start over. Human wickedness had even polluted the animals of earth. I don't know how that all played out, but that's what we see here. And this type of judgment is very hard for us to understand. Very difficult. Uh, it, it's historical moments like this that have caused some people to false, falsely believe that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament can't be the same God. Right? You look at this and you say, well, is he a God of wrath and, and a God of justice? Or when I get to the Gospels and I read about Jesus, is he a God of love and a God of mercy? The answer is yes. He is a God of wrath and a God of justice and a God of righteousness and love and mercy and all these other things. He's perfect in all his ways. But these types of righteous yet violent judgments are beyond our comprehension. And I've heard this, you've probably heard it too, pastors that come up with all kinds of explanations and they'll try to justify why this, well, this should have happened. You know, they were all wicked and it just poisoned everybody. They all needed to die. Uh, All right, yeah. I, 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 I know that there's some, some different uh, things, but my explanation with this is God's beyond me. He's the ultimate authority and I trust him. Each one of us will be responsible for what has been revealed to us when we stand before God at the end of our lives. These people raised in this wicked society had very little knowledge of God. But now we live in a world where salvation has been revealed. We look at these things and we're like, I don't get it all. But we live in a different time. If you're a Christian, you know that you no longer carry your wickedness before God. And that's what I want to get across to you here today. Because you read this, you're like, oh no. If God would wipe them out at, 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 as a whole, what about me? You know, you, we joke about people stepping out and getting struck by lightning. Like God's going to strike you dead for that, right? We see it in the Old Testament. We did it to Sodom and Gomorrah. You better watch out. Don't want to be close to that person. How does, how does that all work? Well, if you're a Christian, you don't carry your wickedness before God anymore. 
Because now when he looks at earth, he still sees that the wickedness of humanity is great and that every intention of their hearts are evil. But he also sees people that are walking in the righteousness of his son, Jesus. Isaiah prophesied it in Isaiah 61.10. He said, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Paul declared it, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He said, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Our righteousness has been given to us because of what Jesus has done. When God looks from heaven now, he doesn't say, oh, I'm so sorry I made that person. No, he looks down to those of us who are in Jesus and he says, I'm so grateful that my son Jesus died for their sins that they can have righteousness. And that's where we get our righteousness. Our sins have been blotted out, not by our own death, but by the death of Jesus on our behalf. Now, I've got to finish. I'm out of time. But let me, we've got to see verse eight. All right. Even if verses one through seven just spin you out, read verse eight, okay? Verse eight says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here at the lowest point of humanity, we see a glimpse of hope and we see God's heart. This is the Lord's favor that we see for Noah. We looked at the beginning of sin and the beginning of salvation and Noah found favor In the very next verse, following this judgment of God, we see God granting favor to one of these people. And I don't want you to miss the importance of that little verse. It's underlined in my Bible. You should probably underline it in yours as well because it explains so much of what's happening. What is the favor of God? The favor of God is God's grace. We hear that word a lot in church and we don't really know what that means, but that's what it is. It's favor. It's a free gift that's been given to us. God has chosen to love his fallen creation. You ever heard that phrase? He's got a face that only a mother could love. It's basically saying that person is that person's so ugly, like nobody else could love that person, right? Here's the thing. Our sin is ugly. It's ugly. But he loves us anyway. And that's what we see here. God loves us anyway. Even when he sees us in our sin, he loves us. At the lowest place of your life, he loves you. God was not satisfied to permanently end humanity. He could have. He could have just said, you know what? That was a failed experiment. Let's try again some other way, some other time. Let's just wipe them all out. But he didn't. Instead, he wanted to redeem and restore us. And our sinfulness was inseparable from our bodies. So he created a way to lead people away from sin into holiness by revealing who he is to humanity. And that started with a covenant that God made with his people, then a system for worship, revealing our sinfulness and his holiness, which ultimately led to a recognition of the need for a savior. And then the ultimate capstone, the provision of himself as that savior in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you just missed that giant paragraph that I just told you, but that's the entire story of the Bible. Okay, that's it. We move from sin to righteousness, from death to life, from devastation to Jesus. That's the way it goes. And that favor, that grace, that little thing right there is the beginning of our salvation. I'm gonna finish with one verse and when we're done, I mean it. 
Salvation on this earth is no longer for just one family. Grace has been poured out. Ephesians 2, 4 to 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. It's the same word here, by favor, by grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not result of works, so that no one may boast. And we all can find favor in the eyes of the Lord now. Are you grateful for that today? I am as well. And I'm grateful that my sin has been blotted out by the blood of Jesus. And may that motivate us to worship him to worship God and thank him for it. Amen? Let's have the worship team come back up. I'm gonna close this in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word here today. And God, we are so thankful for your favor. We recognize, Lord, sinfulness. We recognize wickedness. We understand that sin had infiltrated everything in in this good creation that you had. And God, we know that we, that is our heritage, that we come from that brokenness. But Lord, we are so grateful today that you would still show us favor, that you would still show us grace, that you would still love us so much that you would send Jesus Christ to die for us and to take away our sins. Lord, we pray that that would motivate us to praise, motivate us to worship, motivate us to live our lives devoted to you, that we would be able to share that good news of salvation to others. Lord, that we would no longer have to walk around with guilty consciences and carrying all this sinful baggage. Lord, that we no longer have to be slaves to addiction and brokenness and our our bad ways of doing things. That we could be free from all these things that want to get a hold of us and hang on to us and, and enslave us. We're free. And we're free because of your grace. We're free because of your favor in our lives. Lord, pour out more of that grace upon us. Lord, I pray that as a church, you would make us people that are healthy and whole, people that are free, people that move in righteousness and people that point to the only savior, the only one who can bring us that freedom, Jesus Christ. May we be those people. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.